We're so glad that you chose to worship here with us today as we kick off our first message in our Advent series that we're calling Come and See His Wonder. In a few minutes, we're going to open the scriptures as we always do to Luke chapter 2, the classic Christmas story that is overflowing with wonder. But before we do, I want you just to take a moment and I want you to think back to a time when you personally were overwhelmed with a sense of wonder. Webster's defines wonder as this feeling of surprise mingled with admiration that's caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, or inexplicable. And doesn't that word sum up what Christmas is all about? This feeling that we get, perhaps you've had this feeling when you've stargazed on a clear night or held a newborn baby for the first time, or watched as a storm rolled in at the coast. These moments of wonder, they're so powerful, and they have a way of reminding us that we're part of something much bigger than ourselves, that we are hardwired for the eternal and transcendent. And so we wonder. For me, so many of my fondest memories of wonder revolve around Christmas as a kid. Remember that feeling of Christmas when you were a kid? Growing up, much like Will Ferrell's character in the movie Elf, remember Buddy the Elf? When Christmas rolled around, I was overtaken with yuletide glee and excitement. Some would say I was too excited about Christmas, but it, it encapsulated everything that was wonderful about life. Shopping for the Christmas tree, stringing up the lights, and then counting down the seconds until Christmas Day, all while consuming this magical thing that was in everything when I was a kid called high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> it used to be a number one line item thing. We, we have basically exiled high fructose corn syrup, but it was in everything and it was magical. It was amazing. <laughs> So I distinctly remember the anticipation that coursed through my bloodstream like electricity on Christmas Eve, the night before Christmas Day. So every Christmas Eve, without fail, I'd be so strung out on sugar and adrenaline that I couldn't sleep at all, which was a tremendous gift for my parents. So I'd lie there awake, tossing and turning until 6 a.m. rolled around the agreed upon time that I could wake up mom and dad and my sister. And it was Christmas Day, the most wonderful day of the year. Fast forward to today. Now I'm the parent wishing that I could hit the snooze button on Christmas morning. And my kids have honestly traded in their sense of awe and wonder for Amazon wishlists. Any parents? Any parents get Amazon wishlists wish from their kids? 
Okay, just pray for me. There's no hands that are going up. Pray for me. My kids sent me an Amazon wish list, and I nearly lost it. Don't get me wrong. I still love so many things about the Christmas season, but it's far more common, I believe, to feel weary and worn out when we stand on the other side of Christmas and enter into the new year than anything like awe and wonder. Somewhere along the way, our childhood on wonder, it gets trampled down underneath the weight of to-do lists, the anxiety and stress of social expectation and pressures, and the heaviness that comes from realizing that the world that we live in is not all merry and bright. In fact, I imagine for many of us, here, if we're being honest, this last year was filled with far more moments of woe than moments of wonder. Anybody feel me on that? It's been a very hard year. But what if I told you this morning that there was not only a way to recover a sense of awe and wonder, but to experience a wonder that doesn't wane when life is chock full of bitter disappointments and trials. Throughout the century, the church developed a holy rhythm to recover wonder and awe in the weeks leading up to Christmas, and we call this season Advent. A word that simply means coming or arrival. Advent looks back in wonder at the mystery of the incarnation when God, wonder of wonders, took on flesh and dwelt among us to deliver us from sin's curse, while also looking forward to the day when Jesus will come again to fully remove sin's curse and to heal all that is sad and broken in our world. So in the weeks leading up to Christmas, we are pulling out all the stops to experience the wonder of Christ as a community. And my hope and prayer is, and please make this your own, that it will spill over into our community. In fact, that's the heartbeat behind the vision for this Advent light and art exhibit that is going to happen between December 19th and the 23rd. And would you pray for this? It's going to involve three things. Original artwork that will tell the Christmas story. There'll be 12 stations of original artwork to tell the Christmas story in a really profound way. There will be thousands of Christmas lights and there will be coffee and hot cocoa for kids. Imagine zoo lights, but instead of Santa Claus and reindeers, it's Jesus. The wonder of wonders. And that's what's going to happen December 20, 19th through the 23rd. Would you pray for that? And as you do, we are going to let the Holy Spirit stoke our own sense of wonder that has grown, grown cold, likely, over this last year that's been full of hardship. So with that, would you turn to the most wonderful passage in the New Testament? that's centered around the most wonderful event that ever happened in human history, the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in Luke chapter 2. 
We'll start in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration of Quirinius, the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God! In the highest and on earth among those, um, peace among those whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph. And the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known, this, made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is God's word. The miracle of Christ's birth was so powerful and amazing that this moment overflowed in a groundswell of wonder that swept through the region of Bethlehem that night. In fact, did you notice that little detail that Luke recorded in verse 18 when he tells us that all who heard it, this testimony of Jesus' birth, wondered at what the shepherds told them? Unfortunately, most of us, I believe, have become so familiar with the Christmas story that it doesn't elicit the same wonder and awe and joy as it did for those who first witnessed or heard of the news of Christ's birth. So over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to slow down. We're going to pause from all the busyness, and we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to reawaken 
a sense of wonder by pondering different elements in the Christmas story. So today, if you're taking notes, the gospel writer Luke is going to reveal Jesus' wonder through three scenes. This story is broken up in three scenes of wonder. Scene number one is a seemingly unremarkable arrival. Scene number two is an astonishing announcement. And scene number three is an unexpected transformation. Three scenes. We're going to start with the first, with the scene of a seemingly unremarkable arrival. Luke records the birth of Jesus in just seven verses, which seems a bit unusual, doesn't it? That such a momentous event in human history would be covered in such an economical fashion. In fact, it's not only the brevity of his announcement of Jesus' birth that struck me this week. It's the fact that there's nothing particularly out of the ordinary about it. It's remarkable that it's actually recorded to be fairly unremarkable. No angels singing or halos hovering above Christ's head in the first seven verses. Instead, the physician and Dr. Luke simply gives us an orderly account of the details of Jesus' birth. Here's some of those details he gives us. First, Luke tells us that Christ's birth happened on an actual day in history. Unlike so many stories or religious myths that begin with once upon a time, Luke's account begins with in those days in verse 1. Not an invented mythological day in history, but a day when Caesar Augustus was emperor in Rome. Next, in verse 4, Luke tells us that Jesus was not only born in a real time in history, he was born in a real place, in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, a small unremarkable backwater town in the Middle East that still exists today and is about just 7,000 miles away from Portland, you could go visit it. In verse 6, he tells us that when it came time for Jesus to be born, Luke doesn't mention anything out of the ordinary. Instead, he tells us that when the time came for Mary to give birth, she gave birth. Jesus was born in the same way that you and I were born. And perhaps most shocking of all, all of this unfolded not in a hospital room, but in a humble stable, in a cattle shed, the king of heaven, born to a poor couple. On the surface, there's certainly nothing Instagram-worthy about this moment. Just a crying baby covered in amniotic fluid being held by parents who are scared. However, as the multitude of angels and the heavenly host will soon attest, this is no ordinary baby. And what happened 
This night in Bethlehem is actually the most wonderful moment in history. You see, friends, throughout the Old Testament, God has promised over and over through his prophets that this day would come. Time and time again, the Lord promised from Genesis to Malachi in the Old Testament that this day would arrive when he would send a king from David's lineage who'd come to rescue us, to reclaim what is rightfully his. Did you know that there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that Christ was born to fulfill? To put this in perspective, I want you to take a look at these lights that are hanging up right here, these strands of lights. And I want you to imagine that each of these lights represents a promise that God has spoken to send a Messiah, an anointed king that would deliver the world from all of sin's cruel tyranny. From Genesis to Malachi, a strand of promises. Now, I want you to imagine what would happen if one of those lights was removed from the strand. You know what would happen. This happens to me every year that I go out to set up Christmas lights. You do all of this work. You set them up and then wah, wah. They don't light up. One little tiny light, even if it's missing. Seems incidental, but the whole thing doesn't light up. What's happening this moment in a cattle shed in Bethlehem is God is bringing all of these strands of promises together and they're all lighting up because the light of the world has been born. Unto Mary, unto Joseph, we have a savior. Every detail in this story Every single detail that Luke records from Mary's miraculous conception in chapter one, when she's overshadowed with the Holy Spirit and receives this child, not in a natural way, but as a gift to the world through her from the Holy Spirit to the fact that this birth took place, not in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem. Because of the decree and this registration that was set in motion through a pagan ruler, Caesar Augustus. Each detail in this story, it's like a light in that strand of God's saving promises. All of them are being fulfilled in this moment. I want us to look briefly at two of these Old Testament messianic promises that are fulfilled in Jesus' birth. Two of these little lights of the 300 plus. The first one is in Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. Beautiful promise, Christmas wonder. When we're told through the prophet of Isaiah, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign and behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call, call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The second promise that's fulfilled right here in this moment in Luke 2 is from Micah chapter 5 verses 2 and 3 written about 400 years before the birth of Christ. These words, but you, O Bethlehem, Epiphath, 
who are too little to be among the class of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Promise after promise after promise coming together. All the strands of lights are lighting up in this moment. And folks, this is what makes Christmas such an inexplicable wonder. Because on that night in Bethlehem, the king of the universe arrived in the lowliest of stables to fulfill all of God's saving promises. Amen? Amen. Next, Luke takes us from this humble account of Christ's birth in Bethlehem to one of the most wonderful moments in the New Testament. This astonishing moment as the angels announce the birth of our Savior and Lord to a group of shepherds. Let's look at this again in Luke's account, this astonishing announcement in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. If you had to pick one word that summed up what the shepherds must have been feeling that night, it had to be this word wonder, this feeling of surprise mixed with admiration. We're going to see them worshiping that's caused by something beautiful, inexplicable, unexpected. However, what's so striking about this account is although the shepherds were understandably in awe and taken back by the angel's appearance, the account doesn't end with them simply marveling about how awesome the angels were. Instead, the passage ends with the shepherds in verse 20, look at this, glorifying and praising God, not angels, for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And so although God sends his angelic messengers with his glory, the shepherds are not marveling at the messengers, they're marveling about the wonder of this message. This message, this announcement of good news. So I want us to consider three wondrous things about this announcement that, of good news that the angels bring to the shepherds that night. First, I want us to notice that it's an announcement that conquers fear. That conquers fear. 
it's striking that the angels' first words are fear not. The shepherds are quaking with fear. This unexpected holy moment is too much for them to process. But you need to know that much like our own day, the days that Jesus were born into was a time in human history that was marked by fear. It was a dark time in the history of the world. And fears were running rampant. The dominant emotion, just like our own day, was anxiety and fear and a sense of crippling uncertainty. Fears that were not stoked by a virus or a pandemic or economic uncertainty, as much as fears that were fanned into flame by a pagan Roman king, that Luke identifies as Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, the son of Julius Caesar. And he called himself Augustus. He gave himself that name, meaning great one or the magnificent. He gave himself that name. In reality, Augustus was not great. He was not a great king but rather a a cruel megalomaniac who ruled through fear, through terror. In exchange for protection and peace, the great Pax Romana or peace of Rome, Augustus required those that he conquered and ruled over, both Jews and Roman Gentiles, alike to not only pledge their allegiance, but to worship him as Lord. So in an effort to remind everyone how great and mighty he was, he wanted to have the calendar changed to start the new era in history on his birthday. Did you know that? He wanted to have all the calendars begin at zero with his birthday. So he sent out messengers that were called euangelistes, which we get the word evangelist from. And these messengers, he sent them out throughout the provinces of Rome with an announcement, which in Greek was called a euangelion. A euangelion, a Greek word that we get the word gospel or good news from. Archaeologists have actually found one of these calendars in Turkey several years ago that contained the following inscription and gospel that Caesar Augustus sent out and announced to the world. Look at this announcement that is on this calendar and listen to these words. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, 
surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by reason of him. Sound familiar? I hope it does. Because what the angels are doing in this moment is a staggering, staggering, subversive announcement that's overturning everything that this false ruler, this false Messiah promised. You see, God sent his angels to announce the birthday of a savior for the whole world and the arrival of a different kind of king. Not an inglorious king, but a king whose glory cannot be measured. Unlike Augustus, the Roman king who promised peace and wars to cease, but ruled through tyranny, this glorious king would bring peace on earth in goodwill to all men, and he alone is the one and only prince of peace and Lord of Lords, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen? This announcement, if you believe it, if you receive it like the shepherds did that night, it not only conquers fear, it brings an indestructible joy. It not only calms fears, it fills you with a joy that cannot be robbed or torn down through the bitter trials of life. That's why the angels say, I bring you good news, but not just good news, good news of great joy. In the first century, the number one virtue that distinguished Christ's followers from the world was this great joy. We see the seeds of this joy welling up in the moment immediately after Jesus rose from the dead on Easter morning. In Luke chapter 24, at the end of this gospel, we see the same phrase of great joy show up in chapter 24 and verses 51 and 52. While he, that is Christ, blessed his disciples, he parted from them, was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with Great joy. You see, folks, even in the midst of a year that has not for us been one where joy has come easy, I believe that the Lord wants to fill us with the wonder of Christ so that our joy can witness to our community that we have great Savior and Lord. This joy isn't based on circumstances. It's based on the constant love of a Savior who's promised, I'll never leave you. River West, I'll never forsake you. A God who's with us through every hardship. Amen? Finally, this announcement of good news, of great joy, is for all people. The angel said, I bring you great news, great joy for all people. 
The gospel tears down barriers, crosses bridges, brings unlikely people together. And it's not good news if it's not good news for all. And this is evidence, this nature of the gospel is evidence in that the first recipients of the message were not people of great nobility or class or significance, but rather a group of shepherds. Now in Jesus' day, the status, status of a shepherd in society, it wasn't good. They were on the low end of the social spectrum and they were not generally considered honest, reliable people. In fact, the rabbis in Jesus' day, we know this from the Talmud and rabbinic commentary, that shepherds were deemed so unreliable that their testimony was not even admissible in the courts of Jesus' day. (laughs) Which makes it so remarkable that God, in his sovereign grace, would choose a bunch of religious outcasts to be the first recipients of this good news. But not only the first recipients, but the first witnesses of Christ's birth. The first recipients and the first witnesses of his birth as well. We see this. Look at this. This is so cool. In verses 16 to 18. And they, that is the shepherds, they went with haste. They're running And they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. Well, it makes perfect sense for God to send angels and holy messengers to announce his son's birth. Who would ever imagine that the God of the universe would choose this group of shepherds to be the first evangelists of Christ. And yet that's what happened in this story through a bunch of lowly shepherds. Think about it. Think about how wonderful this truly is. If you and I were going to announce the most significant event in all of human history, wouldn't you try to find the most educated, most influential influential, most respected people to relay this message. And yet, friends, that's one of the many wonders of this Christmas story. As God transformed this lowly group of shepherds into his worshipers and witnesses. The story ends with this unexpected transformations as outcasts become the first evangelists of Christ in Luke's account. But this is the mystery of how God has chosen to reveal the wonder of the gospel to the world, not through influencers, but through outcasts, not through the wise, but through the simple, not through the proud and put together but through the humble and the broken. When I think about the modern day shepherds in our city, the outcasts, the looked over, the lowly, I cannot help but think of the residents that our hotel ministry team visits every month. 
I'm going to invite my good friend Tanya up here this morning, and and she's going to share this morning one of the most powerful testimonies of how this ministry that started 19 years ago by an incredible woman of faith, Debbie Wakeling, how this ministry over the years is making an impact for Christ in the lives of these residents that live in these low-income hotels in some of the areas of our city that have been hit hardest by the pandemic. Um, Our teams go in there to bring the love of Christ, to bring meals, to do visitations, more than anything, to actually bring hope where there is not a lot of hope. And so Tanya, I asked her to, to come up here today to introduce herself and to share a testimony from one of these residents that was too wonderful not to share with you all. Tanya. Thank you, Pastor Christopher, for sharing that. And thank you to those of you that have served with Hotel. It's just been such a blessing to so many. And now I get to share a letter that one of the residents wrote. His name is Tony, and this letter is very special because he is a very private guy. And so it was really surprising to me when he came to me and asked if he could share this letter, not only with the volunteers, but with the entire congregation. Now, this letter does a really good job of describing what Hotel does and the impact that it's had on the residents. Now, I didn't change a single word in this letter, um, so here it goes. To the wonderful people of Hotel Ministries, and the congregation of the church. My name is Tony Johnson. I live in the old town section of downtown Portland. The building that I live in is a low income housing building and very honestly, not much to look at. How I wound up living in such a place is a story that took a lifetime to create and would probably take just as long to explain or write about now or bore you with. So it's not my intention intention to put you through that. I will say that by the time I did move into this building, life, generally speaking, had beaten me down so badly that I had lost all hope that anything, much less everything, was going to be okay. I'm not a drug addict. I'm not an alcoholic. I am, in fact, just a guy who somehow got left behind by life, by friends, and family by God, and in some sense, even by myself. I believe that God hated me. I believe that I was disposable. A throwaway that simply put was nothing more than white trash that didn't deserve anything because I was never going to be anything. Hope was gone completely. I had for all intents and purposes given up. One day I was getting on the elevator here in the building of despair and was introduced by the building manager to a person I came to know as Deb from Hotel Ministries. I smiled and did my best impression of a real person and went about my day. All I knew is that whatever she was selling, I didn't want it. Later that afternoon, there was a knock on my door and when I opened it, was kind of shocked to see this group of people all smiling and friendly looking, asking me, the white trash throwaway, if I needed anything. I remember my biggest thought was really, for real? Over the next few months, we sort of got to know each other, and like clockwork, every month, 
and sometimes more, I'd get a knock on my door only to find the same smiling, friendly faces, making sure that I, Tony, had what I needed to make my life a bit better. Even when they knew that I believed that God hated me and that I hated her too, they never gave up and they never, not even once, let me down. It did not matter what I believed. It mattered what they believed. Their belief in God and in some ways even in me have led to this letter that I write to you now. That was a bunch of years ago. Nowadays, my friends Tanya and Julie and others have taken the hotel ministries over and continue with trying to make the planet a better place to be. I said all of that to say this to all of you. The wonderful people of hotel ministries over the years have brought more to me each month than a bit of food and supplies to make my life better. They deliver to me more than friendly smiles and a warm hello. What they have in fact done is brought back to me something that I had lost many years ago. Something that you, the congregation, sent with them. Something that you offered me. Even when you didn't know me, even when I didn't know how to accept it. You gave it freely, without condition or strings attached. What you gave to me was and continues to be hope. Hope that maybe things will be okay. Hope that maybe God doesn't hate me. Maybe she just has some kind of plan for me that is none of my business. And maybe, hope. I had forgotten what it felt like. I would like for all of you to know that my life is different now because of you. My idea for tomorrow isn't cloudy, scary, or cold. It's not always easy to feel hope for a guy like me. It can be difficult and challenging. And yet I offer you to you that in those moments where I can't feel or accept it, it's your faith and it's your congregation that reminds me that hope is just on the other side of my door smiling at me, bringing me a bit of food, but delivering so much more. It's hope. All I have to do is open the door. As I sit here now and write these words, I'm finding it difficult to explain my gratitude. Somehow the words, thank you, simply do not seem to be enough. They fall short. I want each and every one of you to know that you have touched my life. Like a thousand little fingers, you have reached into my life and created change. You have touched my heart and blessed me with the most important thing I ever had. For that, I am now and will forever be eternally grateful. Very sincerely, Tony Johnson. P.S. When your time has come for you to go towards those pearly gates, please look for me. I'll be hitchhiking. I could probably use a ride. <laughs> it's a reality that so many people living in these SROs downtown are in great need. And it's not just a need for food and clothing. It really is a need for connection, for compassion, and just for hope, just like Tony. My hope today is that Tony's letter will stir your heart to serve in just any way that you can. 
whether it's shopping, cooking, or making a visit, or simply praying for somebody who needs it. So I will be holding a meeting on the 19th of December in the community room after the 11 a.m. service for anyone who is interested in learning more or possibly helping. And I'll also be out in the foyer if you have any questions. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tanya. <clears throat> Thank you so much. Folks, in Romans, we've been talking about a people that are eager, that are obligated and unashamed to take a message of hope into our world. This is why. It's because the most wonderful thing happens when we take this good news of great joy that's for all people and we extend it. The Lord transforms lives. Amen. I hope the five names of people that you have written down, that you'll invite them in this season to come experience Christ's wonder because it's too good to keep to ourselves. Amen. It's too wonderful. And communion reminds us that this wonderful message is not abstract, that Christ was born, that it's physical, that he was born to be with us and in the flesh. And if I can get this thing open. <laughs> Man. Adam, I feel you on the stress of that. Okay, it came over. It's amazing. Oh, the glorious day when we will not be holding like plastic cups, right? May it be, Lord. But I want, you, I want you, in this moment, I want you to think. This good news of great joy for all people, the angels erupt in praise. They say, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those whom he's pleased. Communion reminds us that we have a savior who's pleased with us. And it took his blood shed on the cross and his body broken to experience that grace. Let's receive the body of Christ. Let's remember the good news today. And the cup reminds us of the wonder of his blood. That through the sacrifice of Christ, we have forgiveness. We have hope. Let's receive The Lord is good, amen. We're gonna sing one of my favorite, favorite songs. This hymn, oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. May your heart be moved to worship our Savior and Lord this morning. Let's worship.